I'll make sure it's really clear that it's simply not true. It's false. Right? Whatever you've heard, it's just not true. It was made up. I've heard it as a kid. You've heard it as well. But the more I think about it, the more I realize that's just simply false. It's not true, okay? Now, maybe you're thinking, Todd, what in the world is not true? What's false? It's this, that sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me. That's simply not true. Now, I think we tell our children that because we want them to kind of toughen up at times, have a good spine, and not get deterred by the criticism of others. And I can respect that, can't you? But could we just in a moment of transparency admit that words do hurt? And they may not break a physical bone, but words often, they sting. They bring emotional damage. So remember, it's simply not true. (laughs) Uh, Words do hurt us. That's why I've been saying to you for a couple of weeks, and Travis helped us last week, that words matter. This is what James has been teaching us in chapter 3, that words really matter, which is why teachers and those who are going to be teachers of the Bible are under a stricter examination. We should think twice, three times, four times before we just say, yeah, I'll just jump into being a teacher. That's not something we should glibly just accept. We've got a stricter judgment on those who have to use their words to teach God's truth. But James quickly says it's not just teachers. All of us have the struggle of taming the tongue. And so this week, I want to take one more week, and I want to talk about this issue of our mouths, our tongues. And we're going to see how Paul would lean into James with much of the same thought and how he echoes much of James' teaching. This is a timeout week for us in our current series We're taking six of these throughout the book of James in which we will look at a topic James brings up, but from another biblical author. And so this week we're looking at Paul on words. I want to break out for you and kind of unpack for you what I think is the most singularly instructive verse on the use of words in the entire New Testament. It's succinctly powerful. It's blatantly plain but I think it is incredibly practical, which is why it fits so well with James. It's a shoe leather kind of verse, okay? It's Ephesians 4.29. Would you locate that in your Bibles, would you? And while you're turning to Ephesians 4.29, just a reminder that the God who wrote this Bible has left us one overarching passion of His, namely that His glory be made known to all the nations. And it's our joy at First Family to make His passion our mission. Are you there at Ephesians 4? Whether you've turned it on or turned it open, however you do that, right? Ephesians 4, 29. A fabulously simple verse about how to use our words, all right? My plan today is to simply kind of unpack this verse for you, showing you what the words mean, how they connect, even how the verse fits into a context of Ephesians. I will take a few questions at some point probably after I kind of explain maybe what all the words mean and kind of what they teach us, I'll take a few questions. If you have some, I would go ahead and text those in as you think of them. The text is, uh, the numbers in your study guide. We'll take those live in the service. 
And then I want to kind of end with just some personal uh, reflections on this whole series in regarding our tongue and the use of words that I think will help us as we think about how any of this is even possible, okay? So here's this, what I consider to be the most singularly instructive verse in the entire New Testament on how to use our words. Here's what Paul says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. Let's read it again, just to make sure we have a chance to let this verse kind of settle on us, all right? In fact, I'm going to leave this verse up while I teach through it. You'll have it memorized if you want to. It's that simple. Let's read it again, however. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. A simple four-part verse loaded with truth about how to use our words. What do you say we kind of take it apart? Can we do that? I think there are three basic um, messages that come through in this verse. I'll go ahead and tell you up front what they are. I think he talks about the task of words, the timing of these words, and then the treasure these words can be. Let me show what I mean. He says, first of all, in the first couple of phrases, there's really four phrases in this verse. The first two deal with the task of our words. Look what he says. The first one being a prohibition. In other words, we're not to speak in this way. But then the second one being an instruction. We are to speak in this way. Look what he says. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. And man, does Paul put the bar high here? He doesn't say, I need you to try to limit your corrupting talk. He doesn't say that, does he? He doesn't say, uh, you've got nine out of ten words you can't use. <laughs> it doesn't give percentages or ratios. Paul says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. So let's just all, first of all, get under the word guilty. <laughs> We're all under that as we talk about this. I'm not better than you at this or worse than you. We all have failed this. We've let corrupting talk come out of our mouth. We have. So breathe a sigh of relief and relax. No one's preaching at you right now. We're all going to look at this together. Amen? I like the fact that Paul doesn't lower the standard. He tells us what the goal is, even though he's well aware that even in this church in Ephesus, this was probably something that they had not really accomplished perfectly. He says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth. What does he mean by that? What's the prohibition here? It's against words that, that settle in and rot people. You say, why do you use that? Because the word corruption here refers to that idea of something decaying, something that's unhealthy, and is, it is, um, it's full of rottenness. It's like if you're driving in your neighborhood and you see that dead squirrel on Monday. It's kind of near the curb, you know. It's been hit by a car or a truck or perhaps a, a dog caught up with it and bit it in the neck and it's just kind of languished a while Then it's finally died. It seems a little plump the first day or two, right? Then Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, it's flatter, it's rotten, then its bones begin to shoot. No one's picked it up, and you're walking with your wife one evening. You see this dead carcass of a squirrel. You wouldn't dare pick up that carcass, shove it in your mouth, and serve it for dinner. Look what I picked up. But you know what? Sometimes our words are just like the carcass of a dead animal. They're rotten, they're decaying. They smell, they contain a stench 
They're ugly, and we spew them on people. This is the kind of, these are the kinds of words Paul says, don't let any of those words come out of your mouth. The kind that will lead to rottenness and decay and unhealthiness. Instead, he says, let good words come out. See the next phrase? Here's the instruction. Only the words that are good. And I like the word only combined with the word no. Do you catch the drift here? He's saying, none of this is acceptable. No carcass kind of words, okay? Only good words. Now, in the language of the New Testament, the word good speaks to that which is intrinsically healthy. So what you have here probably is is in some ways a medical kind of metaphor. Don't bring out the rotten, unhealthy, decaying kinds of words. Instead, speak words that, that lead to wholeness, healthiness, soundness, good, intrinsically uh, good words. That's what's happening here. No to these types of words, only these types of words. I do like the fact here, and this may open up a Pandora's box of some type, I like the fact that Paul doesn't actually tell us what the list of words is. You notice that? Wouldn't you agree with me that probably from culture to culture, generation to generation, these words could probably change to some degree? In the 1500s, maybe 1200s, the 2000s, words then may not have been unhealthy. Today they may be. Today there may be words we can use in a good way that they didn't then. I don't know that there's a list that I'm thinking of. I think it's wise that Paul has said, as you live in a culture, understand, words that lead to wholeness and healthiness, man, let's use those. Words that would lead to decay and rottenness, let's don't use those. That's the overarching guiding principle here of our words. That's the task of our language. This is what is expected in... As you think about this word good, I want to make sure you have some more insight on that. The, the word good here is a word that means intrinsically healthy, valuable. It's of worth inherently. Now, this does not mean that the other word for good is bad. Did you catch that? The other word for good isn't bad. In other words, there are two Greek words for good. One is kalos. It just means that something is good to look at. It's not a bad word. It just means that it's a beautiful thing to behold. It kind of speaks to external beauty. So if I say my wife is a kalos lady, I would be saying in Greek culture she's beautiful to look at. But if I said the word used here, if I said my wife is an agathos or an agathos lady, I'd be saying she's a good lady, but she's good on the inside. She's intrinsically healthy and worthwhile, and she has inherent of value about it. Does that make sense? One speaks to the internal nature of something. That's the word used here. We're to speak words that don't just, watch this, don't just sound good like platitudes, you know, flattery, but words that contain deep down intrinsic healthy value. Here's just a side note how geeky I was in college about this word, agathos. Uh, we met in college, and I was knee-deep in languages, I think, in our first year of dating. And so I was so stoked on the Greek language, I would sometimes write a note. I even did this when we were married the first few years. I would write a note that would say, you're an agathos gune. <laughs> gune is the Greek word for a woman or lady. Now, guys, that's not what you should do if you're not in 
biblical training with languages. But I remember just thinking about, the, I always read the word agathos and think, yeah, that, I did some really geeky things in college, didn't I, you know? It just means intrinsically valuable and worthwhile and good. And Paul here is saying, we're to speak words that have that as their, their, their nature. So what do these kinds of words lead to? How are we to use these kinds of words? He says here we're to use them for, look at the next phrase, the next word actually, building up. And in some sense, I don't know if Paul was doing this intentionally, but this is somewhat of a mixed metaphor, at least from our understanding of literature, because he's got really two medical terms in play here. He says, don't speak words of decay and rottenness, sickness. Instead, speak words of wholeness and healthiness, soundness, the kinds of words that actually build up. And the word for build here is the word for house. It's oikos. So in some sense, Paul is saying, when you meet someone, look at them as a construction site and get to work building their house. How do you build their house? You have a tool belt of words. That's the plain, simple meaning of these, this, these first two phrases. So as you encounter people, pull out a hammer to build, not a wrecking ball to destroy. Amen, church? That's really what he's saying here. And so when you think about the task of our words, let's just put it in plain language, it is to construct, not destroy. That's really the goal of the language of New Testament believers. He then kind of describes when this occurs. In a, in a simple phrase that describes the timing of our words. If the task of our words is to construct, not destroy, when do we do this? Well, I love what Paul does here. He says we're to do this, we're to avoid, we're not to, we're to, uh, avoid and not speak any corruptive words. We're to speak words that are healthy and whole so that we build someone up as fits the occasion. It's really just one word with an article. And the word means at the opportune moment, at the prime time, or when it's most needed, speak that word that builds that person up. That's what's happening here. Paul actually frees up the church at Ephesus to be active, engaged listeners. Their radar is on, their antenna is up, and they're listening to every conversation. They're engaged, they're active, and they're thinking, hey, what is the need of the moment? In fact, some translations actually say according to the need of the moment. You may have one of those in your lap. It's saying that as you're listening actively and you sense someone's need, your response as the hearer is to say, how can I build up that hearer? How can I build up that listener where their needs are? Now, listen very carefully. Here's what we typically do. We typically don't time our words based on the need of the hearer. We typically time our words based on the creed or greed of the speaker. Now, I'm getting intensely personal. But how many of us have said this before? Man, I just have to say this. I just got to get this off my chest. Now, Hear me well. I'm not doubting that there are moments your opinion would weigh well in a conversation. Might need to be heard. I'm doubting that. 
I'm asking you to think about the motives of the timing of that word. That sometimes we are using our words to make ourselves feel better. You with me? When the scripture's parameter is that we're to speak words based on the need of the hearer. So Todd, what do you do when you feel like you have an important word to be heard, but perhaps it's coming from motive like, now I got to get this off my chest. I got to get this out. They better hear what I think about this. What do you do? Here's just a tip that helps me. I don't know if it works every time, but when I think I have a difficult conversation ahead, here's something that helps me. Give it a day. Just give it 24 hours. Now, if it's an encouraging word, if it's a word that could lean in and build up on the spot, man, I would say that immediately. What I find is that often we do the opposite. When it's something to vent to make ourselves feel better, we're quick to say it. And when it's a word that would encourage someone else, we often think twice, three times about saying it. We're like, well, I don't want to embarrass them. I don't want to be the you know, take the limelight. I don't want to feel like I'm putting them on the spot. And we pull back from saying the very things that would meet a need, but when it's going to address an issue in a way that, that makes us feel better, we jump right in with both feet without any thought sometimes. I think it should be flipped. When you have difficult conversations ahead, when you know you've got to address something tough, if you can, try to give it a day. Think it through. Weigh it. Look it over. Analyze it. How are you going to approach this and what are you going to say? In the end, that's, that's, you'll, it'll be a win-win, hopefully. But when you're, when you're going to lean in with positive, encouraging words, man, go ahead and get them out there. Save them. Build that person up. Now, this leads me to say this to you. By no means is Paul saying in these first two phrases, as well as this one word about the occasion, you know, fitting the need of the moment, is Paul saying that we shouldn't, say difficult things at times, okay? I think what Paul is instructing us on is this, though. We have to learn how to say difficult things in the right way. You with me? In fact, can I bring some context to bear to this? Look at this very same chapter. Look what he says in verse 25. We're to put away falsehood and we're to speak truth with his neighbor. He even says in verse 26 that, We're not to be angry in sin, which would give the implication that there may be times that you can be rightfully angry and speak about it without doing it in a wrong way. Does that make sense? So don't think I'm encouraging this morning, well, Todd's looking for us to live in a garden of roses, no thorns or thistles, and we're just to kind of act like everything's cheery and hunky-dory, you know? Now, I'm not saying that. There are often times, husbands and wives, children and parents, co-workers, friends, have to have talks that reconcile things, that mend fences, that um, work for forgiveness. That's because none of us have met the standard here of no corrupting talk. Are you, are you with me? So, so hard conversations, difficult conversations are not out of bounds. It's the way we go about them. And my encouragement to you is this. If you can wait a day, do so when it's difficult and perhaps going to be negative and when it's got some potential risk, just try to wait a day. I have found, I'll be, I'll be really transparent with you here. I've been really convicted by the ones in James and these verses the last probably month. Just really wanting to use my words better and aware of the stricter examination I'll be under. I've been really under the weight of that. And I've been trying to implement this where when I spot something that from my perspective, 
I should be able to fix in a matter of minutes. <laughs> You've had these thoughts, haven't you? Oh, I, I could take care of that. I got a better idea than that. Or they should do it this way. Or you have all these thoughts, and a lot of them come from our past, our experiences, how we view things. We don't know much of the story. We just want to jump in with our opinion. I've found more victory in the last three or four weeks just by waiting a day and saying, are there questions I should first ask? Is there more of the story I don't know? And there always is, by the way. And would it be helpful to refrain for a day and then maybe to engage with that person about this topic? And I just found a lot more victory. And yet when I sense God's Spirit prompting me to verbally meet some needs on the spot in a positive way, man, to get those out quicker than later. And the Lord's been very gracious, just helping me learn how to use my tongue in a better way. This has been one of the verses that has really helped me. It's very instructive. So here's kind of how this looks, okay? Let's take these two phrases and let's think about them for a minute. What would it look like if we had a tool belt of words And we knew our goal was to build up one another as fits the occasion, based on the need of the moment. It would look like a set of people with their radar really on, you know, their antenna is up, and they're actively listening in conversation. There's no accidental encounter, whether you're coming in the door, whether you're in Walmart, whether you're at, you know, Quick Trip, or whether you're, you're at school as a teenager, you're at one of your practices, whether you're in a ladies' Bible study, your lighthouse... Wherever your encounters are, when you have that one-minute conversation or 20-minute conversation, here's what this passage looks like. Your radar is on and you're listening. What are your needs? What are your needs? What are your needs? What are your needs? It's just kind of sending out the signal, right? And it's picking up. What are the needs of this person I'm talking to? And then as, you, as you're aware of them, which I think the Holy Spirit will lead you to be aware of those, hopefully, as this Spirit, which is filling you, Ephesians, uh, uh, by the way, Ephesians 5, as, as, as the body's needs, as this person's needs are becoming aware, then you start thinking, how could I help meet those needs with my words? And you start using your words as tools on the spot as fits the occasion. Does that make sense, guys? And imagine if a body of people were doing that. If a faith family of followers of Christ were implementing this simple strategy, just being active listeners their radar on, thinking based on the need of the hearer at the moment, I'm going to use my words to build them up, not tear them down. And if this was to, were to happen church-wide, it would be an amazing environment. It would be a powerful atmosphere. This is what Paul has in mind when he encourages us here in Ephesians 4 not to let corrupting talk come out of our mouth, but only words that are good for building up as fits the occasion. An example of how we did this as a family would serve well here. And we didn't do it perfectly, but this one thing helped us for a number of years. Um, And if you ask my kids about this, they may remember the general idea. They may not remember the specifics. I found out lately as I get older that sometimes things I remember we did, they're like, we did that? You know, they look at me like, we, and they don't remember. And so some of these are probably vague to them at times. But I recall at times, Jill and I would be thinking, how can we set the trajectory of their day? What can we do to make sure the words of our home are, are pointed the right direction early, you know? And we just noticed that typically how you started your day and how you talked at breakfast 
seemed to kind of set the tone for the rest of the day. I don't know if that's true or false. It was true for us a lot of times. And so we just kind of developed this idea over for a few years in there while the kids were home and we're all young. We'd say this, let your first words be good words or no words. You know what I'm saying? And so until you can say something good, just don't voice how you don't like the cereal or you wish we had something else or why do we not have any juice or what you hate about your test coming up or why you're not ready for school or your hair's not working out today or whatever it is that's bugging you in the first 30 minutes of getting up. (laughs) Maybe we can process that some other way than the first thing at breakfast. And so we would say, hey, let your first words be good words or no words. Now, I don't know that we did that for a long time, but for a while it really helped change the trajectory of, of kind of how the morning would start. And if you've got little kids, could somebody please just say amen? They know what that's like. Amen, you're right. Like, man, we know what that's like. You want to get a good start. It shows you the power of words, first of all. Second of all, it shows you the importance of, of using your words to build up. And so we would try to greet the kids you know, with a positive word. No matter what they might wear coming down the stairs, right? <laughs> just try to let it be a, a good positive word. No matter what you thought about the night before or how that ended, no matter what you thought was ahead for the day, try to let your first word be a good word. Model that. Expect that. We found that sometimes that really helps set the trajectory. See, that's the idea of good words, no corrupting words, and as fits the moment. All right? When that's done, here's what I think he does next. He describes kind of how that is perceived and the resulting, I use the word feeling or the resulting, um, uh, the result that happens in this last phrase of the verse. Look what he says. He says, in order that it may give grace to those who hear. The word that there is in the Greek language with construction we call a henna of purpose. The word is henna. It just means that what you're going to read next describes the purpose for what came before this. So we kind of technically call that a henna of purpose. What he says here is, when you use your words to build up, not destroy, and you're aware of every encounter and you're sensitive and you're trying to use them in that way, specifically uh, in a targeted fashion to build someone up, the end result is that it gives grace to those who hear. Now, who here would love more grace? My hand's up, wouldn't you? Yeah. So what does this mean? Does it mean that, that we get more saving grace? No. Does it mean that, that uh, you know, we have some sanctifying grace? Probably not. The word grace is simply the word gift. And all Paul is saying here is this. When you speak words that build up, you give the hearer a gift that ministers to their life. That's all he's saying. In other words, let's say I'm talking to Larry and Sandy. Their, their radar's on. Their antenna's up. Do with me. Right? They're, they're picking up my needs. Sandy leans forward and just leaves an encouraging word. She just says, I'm going to try to build him up where he's needing right now. He's got a house. He's working on it. His Here's some, I'm going to use my tools to build Todd up. So she does that. We say goodbye. When she leaves, I should have the sense that she left me a gift, not a debt. But sometimes when we leave conversations, we're like, man, 
why'd I run into them? <laughs> you know? Wish I'd gone, taken the other aisle at Hy-Vee. Wish I'd have come later to Walmart. We have all these thoughts about, wow, we, you know, we, we live almost feel like there's a ball and chain around our ankle. But the Bible says, really, when we meet one another and we use words based on the need of the moment, it should send the signal that, wow, you matter, and I'm going to leave you with a gift. My word should be a gift to you. So what does the gift do? A gift is something you open and you treasure. I think this last phrase speaks to the treasure of our words. It's something we, we look at later even. We hold. I think words should be that way. Do you know that? I think words should be so powerful, so encouraging, so edifying, that even after you've left the conversation, you remember what they said, and it brings a smile to your face. You remember um, the way the body of Christ works. You remember the, 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 the great effect the Holy Spirit had in that brief or perhaps long conversation. When I was in college, I, um, I remember this example, this incident, when my mom left a gift of her words to a realtor. I'll never forget this. And it was a while ago, you're right. But I'll, I'll never forget this because it was so impacting to me. We were trying to sell our home. We didn't sell it, by the way, at that point. So uh, we ended up not doing this. But she brought some realtors in one by one to maybe look at listing the house. And one of the realtors walked around, took their 30, 40-minute tour, I guess, made a list of things. And when she got to I was kind of just kind of tagging along, helping out, you know, just listening and talking and we got to the door, the realtor turned around and said, you know, after talking to you, Mrs. Stiles, it's, it's like the, I feel like the Lord's been in this house. That's, that's an amazing compliment to my mother. She'd never tell you that story. She would be embarrassed if she, when she knows I told it to you, probably. But I'll always remember standing by the front door at 4600 Mayfair Avenue and having that realtor say to my mother, just by hearing you talk for the last 30 minutes, I feel like the Lord's in this house. And my mom, you know, she didn't say, welcome to her home, have a seat, my son's going to preach to you first. You know, she didn't say that. We don't have like no smoking signs in the house or like, you know, uh, anything. We, don't have, we didn't have glaring Christian signs about habits or nothing that's wrong, but that just wasn't us. It was just a normal home, all right? But somewhere in that conversation, that lady picked up a sense that these words are encouraging. They're letting her know something. And so she responded with this amazing comment. I feel like the Lord's been in this house. I've always thought that's how I want people to leave our home. That's that's how I want them to see our home, you know. The Lord's been here. And how can they pick that up? One of the best ways and first ways is by the way we talk to each other. So Paul really addresses this here. He just says, you know, let's not speak words that are, rotten, that have a decaying nature about them. But let's speak words that bring wholeness and healthiness. That, that it fit the occasion based on the need of that moment of that here. And then let's make sure those words then are a gift to those who hear us. That's how we give grace. Now, again, I want to say to you when, you, when you read this, you may think, well, Todd, this... This sounds like we're just supposed to kind of pretend that everything's cheery and rosy. I'm not preaching that. I'm not saying that. I'm asking for the kind of honesty 
transparency and thoughtfulness, though, that even when the words have to be difficult, we say them in a way that, that is heard well, lands well. We stay at the table and work things out. That's what I'm talking about. Those are the kinds of words that build up. I mean, think about it, guys. Words that build up sometimes are difficult words. When you're building a house, there are times you saw the board, right? You bring out the saw, you, you cut it the right length, you hammer the nail. There are times you have to do a little demolition before you do the construction, but you want to do it in the right way. You don't want to take out a wall and end up taking out a whole room. Even if you use the medicinal analogy, there are times you want to get your kids well and you have to attack what's wrong with medicine, right? I can recall uh, holding our kids and trying to give them medicine. It was a family project. Can I just say that to you? What was the white medicine called that had the grainy sand in it? Augmentin? Yeah, that's the nastiest stuff ever made. Somehow, I got some in my mouth when I don't know which of our kids were little. It tasted like sand and glue stirred up. And I'm thinking, I'm giving this to my kid? And man, they would fight and scream. I'm holding one side, you lose on the other. They got these syringes, you know, or these little tubes you pour. None of those work, man. I mean, we're just, you know, holding the chin. They're screaming. But guess what? We've got to get the medicine in, right? So sometimes you do some difficult things. You have to do tough things. The point is this. The end game has to be edification, construction, building up. And so we use the words, even if it's a difficult situation, in the right way. When that's done, those who hear, then their house is a little more constructed when you leave them than when you saw it. That's, that's cool, isn't it? In other words, the treasure of your words is not that you're leaving a hole in their house. You're not leaving a damaged roof. You're leaving just one more brick in the addition. You're leaving an extra nail in the wall. You're, you're doing your part to add to their construction site. You're leaving a gift, not a debt. You're not doing damage. You're helping build. This is the point of this most singularly instructive verse. All of us are carpenters, and all of us are on various work sites every day, and the tools we all wear are words. How will you use yours to help each other build their house today? Let's take a few questions if there are any, and then um, I'll share some reflections on these last two or three weeks in regards to the tongue. In your experience, what are some examples of types of speech or words that have been useful for building up? I'll give you two, and you know these, but I want to share them with you to answer the question. I think the most powerful words you can say to your children are these words, I'm proud of you. Now, I'm telling you things that I'm not sure my kids know the whole background to all this, so welcome to a pastorally transparent moment here. I think the words, I love you, are awesome. But when it comes to a kid, a kid is always wanting to please their parents, at least most kids, okay? They want to work hard for that. And you can say, I love you, but display in your demeanor, and even other words that, you know, but you're not good enough yet. The words, I'm proud of you, say to your children, no matter what you do today, just the fact that you're breathing, I'm proud of you. I'm telling you, the words, I'm proud of you, go a long way with children. 
Just let them know that your stamp, your thumb, hey, I'm with you. They don't have to do anything to earn that, by the way. They're wearing your last name. Just tell them you're proud of them. Now, there's probably some sticky moments in that. If you have a, have a wayward child, if you've had some moments where they, that you really weren't proud of them, I would, I would grant you, that's going to be, um, walking through that can be sticky. But I would say to you, I think even in some of those moments, there is a way to be proud that you are their parent, but perhaps not proud of what they're doing. That's what you've got to communicate. But just as a general rule, if you ask me that question, I would say those four words to children from when they're young to when they're old, just say them every day. Let your kids know, I'm proud of you. When it comes to your spouse, I think these words carry great weight. I'm here for you. And you can, again, you can use the words, I love you, and you should. I don't want to suddenly sound like I'm not for the words, I love you. That's careful there. You should. But I'm going to come back from a man's angle. Women, they struggle with one thing primarily, that's security. I'm not a woman's expert. I'm just telling you what women tell me, okay? What my wife tells me, right? Women want to know things are secure, they're stable, nothing's going to happen. So I have found that the words, I'm here for you, said in different ways at different times, expressed in different formats, goes a long way because it addresses, I think, what's the fundamental need of a woman, and that is security. So there's probably a lot of other ones, but to answer the question, I would say in my experience, those two types of phrases have really helped our family a lot. Is there another question, Alan? Which verses in James would you say Ephesians 4.29 specifically ties into? Let's go to James 3, and I'll show you the answer to that question. James chapter 3. If you look towards the end of verses, let's say, um, beginning with verses, verse 9, he talks about blessing the Lord, but then cursing people who were actually made in the likeness of God. Do you see that? He then talks about how the same mouth uh, uttering blessing and cursing should not be so. And he illustrates that with the idea of a spring giving fresh and salt water or a tree giving olives and figs, you know. In other words, I think this is the idea of the corrupting mouth and then the good mouth. He's saying, guys, the, the corruption shouldn't be coming from those whose mouths are changed by Christ We should give words that are whole and healthy. So if you had to ask me, you know, where does this tie in? I think the end of this section on the tongue in James 3, verses 9 through about 12, really kind of lean into the same idea of Ephesians 4.29. Just making sure that we're not saying two things out of one mouth, but instead we're using only words that are healthy and build up. Very good question. Is there one more, Alan? Okay. Two good, good questions. I appreciate that. Let me just close by sharing with you how this has really impacted my own personal life, okay, some reflections on this. Because probably about a month ago, we we started this series on James 3, three weeks ago. We've taken a time out today to talk more about the tongue. But even prior to bringing this to you, you know, we were in it several weeks as as teaching team of pastors. And I, I realized I had gotten lackadaisical with my tongue. Um. And I think this is one of the reasons that my emotion, when I unpacked James 3, 1 through 12 with you, towards the end of that message, realizing how, how I just am so far from James 3, but Jesus is perfect in that, you know? 
It was overwhelming, even in front of you that day. I was overwhelmed by his goodness and graciousness in forgiving all the sins of my mouth. So that week, I just began to, to ask the Lord to renew my commitment to teaching with, with compassion to you guys and, and honesty and clarity, relating that way to my children and Julie, and, and not sliding away from the demands and commands of Scripture in regards to my mouth. And so I've been kind of engaged in that, uh, waiting longer before I talk, in fact. And to flip that coin over, to be frank with you, speaking more quickly when I know the words will help someone. As I've been trying to do both of those things, there have been times I thought, wow, this is, uh, I need some more sanctification here. You ever felt that about something? And you, you feel convicted by the Spirit, and so you want to lean into it. You want God to really change you. And then as He starts, it seems like he opens up your chest cavity. You're like, wow, that really is a black hole in there. <laughs> like you see what's going on. You're like, wow. No wonder I need God. No wonder I need the Spirit. So I, I began to see something like, man, I, I've got a long way to go. And perhaps maybe I had thought maybe after 25 plus years in ministry and 27 years of marriage and 11 plus years here that maybe I'd kind of had this tongue thing down. But I don't. I don't. I'm learning every day. And I'm asking God to change me and to sanctify this little muscle tucked in behind these two lips. I want to speak in a better way. I want to use my words biblically, not just okay. I want to be as biblical as I can. It's going to take the work of the Spirit. So as I was thinking through that, I I began to, to just read the verses around 429 in Ephesians. And I was stunned by what I read in verses 17 through 24. Could you look there briefly as we wrap things up? Look at the context in which this verse is planted. All right? Verses 17 through 24, he talks. I'm just going to draw your attention to some phrases. Look what he says. He says, don't walk as the Gentiles do. So he's going to begin to contrast what a, a Christian looks like as opposed to a non-Christian. The word Gentiles in this case is the word pagans. In other words, those who don't believe. He says, don't walk like they walk. And then he says, this is not how you learned Christ in verse 20. So they learned Christ in a different way. They didn't learn Christ based on what the pagans portray him as. No, they learned Christ by seeing that the truth was in Jesus, verse 21 says. Trusting in Jesus to, verse 23, renew the spirit of their minds. That's how they're renewed in the spirit of their minds. Verse 24, to put on the new self. And then this next word, created after the likeness of God. You know what God has done in us? Listen, church, listen. Do you know what God has done in us? He has created within you a new person. He regenerated you when he saved you. He adopted you into his family. He converted you from darkness to light. And one of the ways that the lost pagan world is to see that God has done an amazing thing in you is by listening to how you talk. Which is why he says in the next part of the verse, look at verse 25, therefore, and he lists a number of habits that should change. 
We should speak truthfully, not falsely. We should not be angry in in the wrong way. We shouldn't stay angry. We should not steal. We should work. We should not speak corrupting words. We should speak good words. We should build up, not tear down. We should not grieve God's spirit. We should put away wrath and anger. We should be kind to each other and forgive. You see that list? So I'm not picking a verse out of this page and then in a, in a wrong way just preaching on one verse. We don't really do that here. I hope you caught that this morning. We did something we've really, we really never do here. We lifted one verse off a page and preached it. We almost always pick a paragraph or a contextual group, don't we? And I was wondering if I would catch it. But yet we didn't do anything wrong. You know why? Because within this paragraph, he's saying, here's one way you show the world what a difference Christ has made. Uh, in fact, in its most specific context, context, here's one of the ways you show the church you're really born again. Created new, renewed, you've learned about Christ and you're the truth in Jesus. You don't walk as the Gentiles. That's, that's, all those phrases are there. And so then it hit me. Now, now watch me as I, as I bring you into this kind of reflection that just was overwhelming. And I hope I can say this correctly. <laughs> I hope my words will come out well. <laughs> In one sense, Ephesians 4.29 says that the hearer is the end game of the words. I get that. But in the larger context, the hearer is not the primary goal. The primary goal is that God be glorified by how we speak and that the change he has wrought in us be clear. Does that make sense? So I don't know how to balance those yet. I don't know if I want to say that the secondary goal is that believers and hearers are edified because I think that's really the point of verse 29. We've got to start speaking not based on our creed or greed, but based on their need and using words that build up. Leave them a gift. That's got to start happening more and more in every encounter. And yet, when that happens, we don't walk away saying, whew, I feel better. Man, I mean, that, that's, that's so um, horizontal that it misses any kind of long-term eternal real power. So you're better, big deal, right? <laughs> What we're asking is this, what brings glory to God? And when that kind of talk is happening, and in the end game, believers are edified, and there are gifts being opened, and words are being remembered that have built us up, somewhere in that equation, I think then people say, man, God must be incredibly powerful if he can change the way people talk. Does that make sense, guys? That's the context here. And so I just want to say to you as your pastor, as one of your pastors, actually, it is my continuing goal to use my tongue in the most biblical way possible. Have you and I both made mistakes? Yes, no one has met this goal. But I come back to the one who did, Jesus Christ, amen who let nothing come out of his mouth that was sinful. When he was reviled, he did not revile. And I'm going to stand in him and the new creation he has made in me. And I'm going to continue by his power and by his strength to let him change this mouth. I'm asking you, 
Would you join me in that? Would you kind of row that boat with me? Not in our own flesh. I don't want you to whiten up with that oar and think you can do it. Trust me. A few weeks from now, you'll realize you can't. But if God has made us a new creation, if He has regenerated this heart, converted us, adopted us, and is sanctifying us, if all of that incredible salvific work is being done by God, it would only stand to reason that at some point that's going to affect this tongue. And I'm praying that it does quicker than later. I'm praying that it does within this realm first with me and my family, as I am for you and your family, and that it spreads to our spiritual family. And that Ephesians 4.29, the most singularly instructive verse on the tongue in the whole New Testament, becomes a verse that we are aiming for and shooting for in the power of God's Spirit. Will you join me in that? In fact, here's how I want you to say it. Here's the single take-home truth for you. That you'll use your words as tools to build other believers up where they're weak. That means your radar's on, right? Antenna's up. You're spotting needs as fits the occasion. You're looking, you're, you're attentive. And that your um, words will be a gift to those who hear you talk. Could you read that with me just one time? Let's read it as it's written. Ready? I'll use my words as tools to build other believers up where they're weak. This will be my gift to those to hear me talk. Let's pray.